Plucky Ladies Podcast, exploring female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence. Hosted by Jess Cat. Today on Plucky Ladies, I'm talking with Dr. Melody Buckner. She's the Associate Vice Provost of Digital Learning Initiatives and Online Education at the University of Arizona. So this will be a very timely discussion today about digital learning, among other things. Uh, She began as an instructional designer, helping faculty create engaging online courses, which is so important to so many of us right now. She has a BS in architecture from ASU, an MS in educational technology from NAU, and a PhD in learning and sociocultural studies from U of A. So she's hit all three of the big three Arizona state schools, um, and she's lived in over 40 different places. So I can't wait to talk to her about that as well. So welcome, Melody. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about this conversation. Me too. So I want to start at the beginning a little bit and hear where you're from and some of this about where you've lived in 40 different places, how that came to be. So where did you grow up, first of all? So I grew up in Phoenix. Um, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee, um, but my mom um, decided she did not want to live in the Deep South anymore and um, moved, moved us to Phoenix when I was eight years old. Mm. So Phoenix, um, Arizona is pretty much my home where I grew up. Uh, That's why I think I have explored all three universities. Yeah. So you feel like an Arizona person. I do. I do. I feel like Arizona is my home. Yeah. So what did your parents do when you were growing up? Um, My mom was a teacher Mm. and uh, probably why I have an affinity toward education. Uh, And she was a a master teacher. She um, taught fourth grade. And then she became a reading specialist. She got her master's and she was very uh, much into the student experience. She uh, worked in the inner city of Phoenix and South Phoenix and had a real heart and passion for students. And I think that has really formed my passion uh, for our student experience here at the University of Arizona. Yeah, I think teaching in those types of environments is actually, it should be required for all of our K-12 teachers at some point in their career. I did that first before I started at U of A. I was teaching high school at a charter school here in South Tucson. And it was probably the most impactful experience of my life in terms of learning and learning how to be a better teacher. It just pushed me beyond all of my comfort zone. It took everything I thought I knew about what I was good at and spun it upside down. Um, So I can only imagine what that was like for your mother and the fact that she was so passionate about her students' experiences is so commendable. Yeah. And, and then my dad, um, he passed away when I was six and my mom never remarried. So I was pretty much raised by a single mom who had a a passion for teaching and was a really strong woman. Um, But my dad, you know, he made an impact on me for my first six years of my life. And, uh, you know, he's still, I feel like he's still with me. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Well, so were you an only child or did you have siblings? I'm an only child. I'm the only one. So me too. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I love being an only. I hear, you know, when I hear someone else is an only child, I'm like, we could probably have long discussions about what that means. (laughs) I think there's something to that. Um, But that's fantastic to hear about your mom being such a strong influence in your life. So you spent your childhood in Phoenix. And then so you started at um, ASU, which is in Tempe, which is basically Phoenix, right? It's right there. So you didn't go far from home for college. And so what took you to um, NAU? Uh, So actually, it's kind of a, a 
windy story. I started at NAU uh, for two years for my undergrad and, a, and NAU did not have architecture. And so I transferred, actually I got accepted to the University of, of uh, Oregon and went up there for a year, but I just couldn't handle the rain. Mm. So I transferred back to ASU and finished my architecture degree at ASU. So kind of had this windy journey on my undergraduate. And then um, I worked as an animator. I was a 3D animator right out of school. Oh, wow. And uh, it was fascinating. It was in the um, 80s. So we were having to do a lot of programming. Mm. Um, I um, worked on a Silicon Graphics workstation and worked with software called Wavefront. Uh, very much at the very beginning of uh, the 3D animation um, world. Uh, got to, to work with uh, Lassiter, uh, who did uh, Pixar. So I, I got to do some really fun things. Uh, but then uh, love uh, overcame and I ended up marrying uh, a man who I'm still married to today. Mm -hmm. uh, and we traveled around the world uh, for 20 years, uh, living in over 40 places uh, for his job. And he built sound suppression systems for jet engines. And um, we just had a blast traveling. So I kind of put my career on hold for a little bit just to enjoy traveling. I, uh, I quit my job as an animator and moved to Telluride for a while and skied for a while and then went and lived in Yellowstone National Park and then moved to Europe with my boyfriend at the time who then became my husband. And we started uh, traveling and it, it took us all over the world. And uh, we even had our children while we were traveling and our children um, have lived in the UK, Germany and Italy outside of the United States and then have lived all over. But when the kids were about junior high, I decided maybe we should uh, light somewhere and get them through high school. Yeah. Um, so we did that. Uh, and we came to Tucson because this is where my husband's parents are. Oh. And, and so this, this is where we've been um, since my kids hit junior high. Okay. So there was a lot to unpack there. There were so many great things I heard. So first of all, it sounds to me like if you pursued architecture as an undergraduate, and then you were an animator, you must have an affinity for the arts. Are you an artistic person? You draw and things like that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And did, was that something you discovered from a young age? Yes. Um, I, you know, I have this creative but mathematical side. So I kind of have like both sides of that equation. I'm kind of an organized person, but I'm real creative. Yeah. So the architecture and 3D animation was kind of a natural fit for me. I like the programming side. So I was doing a lot of programming yeah. uh, when I was in my undergrad and then in my, my first career as an mm -hmm. animator, because it wasn't animation like they're doing today. We were having to do a lot of programming at the time to get the creativity out. Yeah. And so, yes, I, I love the art side of it, um, but I also like kind of the science or the, the math behind the art. So there's yeah. that two-edged uh, sword to the to, to my brain, I guess. Sure, sure. So you were, you were literally probably one of the first uh, girls who coded in the 80s. I mean, that's, when you think about it now, it's kind of a big like movement, like there's girls who code and all these things, but you were doing it back in the 80s when it was a very new thing. Yes, very, very much a male dominated field at yeah. the time. And it was pretty cutthroat. And that's probably why I got out of it 
Hmm. I tend to be more of a collaborator than a competitor. Yeah. And so it was very competitive at the time. Yeah. And I did get to meet John Lasseter. I did get to, you know, work with him on some of the, the stuff with ray tracing, which is the formulation of bouncing light off of objects. And it was all coded, you know, how do we, how do we do that? Yeah. So, you know, that was really fun, but it was so competitive. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I got some job offers to go to Silicon Valley, I think before it was Silicon Valley. Yeah. And, you know, I was just like, boy, that is just such a cutthroat world that um, it didn't really appeal to me. And so I did animation for five years, mm-hmm. uh, but then I quit and, turned into a hippie and moved to Telluride. I love Um, it. (laughs) I mean, sometimes you you have to do things for your well-being that are not necessarily career-driven. Yeah, I think I could write a book that Eat, Pray, Love. That was my 27th year or 28th year. It was right around that. And I think, you know, that's what I did. I, I quit what I was doing as a career for a passion of just to find out who I was. And I lived in Telluride. I ran a bed and breakfast. And then uh, in the summer, I moved to Yellowstone and I worked the park and hiked over 250 miles in the park. And then I went to Europe and um, just kind of toured Europe for, gosh, I guess it was about two months uh, that I just kind of trekked through Europe. Um, So yeah, it was just kind of that year of like, who am I and who do I want to be? And uh, it, it, everybody thought I was crazy. Cause I had a great, a great job, great salary, you know, doing really well. My mom was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I know I've got to kind of find myself at, at 27, yeah. but I, um, I think it's a good thing for everybody to do if, and I realized what privilege I had in, in being able to do that too, sure. but I did it on a shoestring. I didn't have a whole lot of money, yeah. um, you know, but it was different times too. Well, and it's such an important message, even if it's not, you know, quit your job and move somewhere to ski for a year or two or whatever your choice is. But this idea of really figuring out what you want, I think is one that um, sometimes, especially now, because getting a job is so difficult, um, I think sometimes that's lost a little bit. And, you know, I, I come across so many students who say things to me like, well, I'm majoring in this because I know I'll get a job. And sometimes I'll push them a little and I'll say, well, do you love it? Is this something you really enjoy doing? And a lot of the time they say, no, you know, my parents told me it was a good major, or I feel like if I get out of U of A with this major, I'm definitely going to get a job. And, you know, I really like this, but I don't think I could get a job in that. And I think sometimes we just forget that, you know, life is short. And if you don't love what you do, there's going to come a time like did it did with you where you go, what am I doing? And do I want to do this for the rest of my life? That was it. And that was, that was a turning point for me. It's interesting that my son who um, is about to graduate from U of A, uh, he went to Chile for uh, study abroad mm-hmm. and his, his major is political science and Spanish and Portuguese. He's a double major. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think his time in Chile really took him out of the American culture and put him into a culture that's a a little slower, a little different, you know, has, has different goals, different viewpoints on life. And he's come back and he's like, great, I want to go to grad school. And then I want to take a year off and travel. And I'm like, yikes. Yeah. Why not? And so, you know, it's getting, and and I'm totally excited about him doing that, but I also have to get him to think a little bit. Okay, so you're going to take a year off. That means you need to start saving money. 
and really, and he's like, yes, I've got a plan. I'm going to map it out what I'm doing. And, and I'm like, okay, let's, let's see. Um, and he's a musician too. So he's, he really wants to pursue his music. And I'm just, oh, when you have kiddos, you know, it's, yeah. it's like, and you know, you're just like, wow, I, I want you to, to live your dream, but I also want you to be successful and, and, and to get off my payroll a little bit too. Well, so sure. you know. it's, it's very scary. I mean, I think back to when I switched into geology as a major, because I was a sophomore in college and, you know, I remember my mom kind of being like, what, why, like, what is that? Because I was on a trajectory and then this was going to shake everything up and maybe delay things a bit, which luckily it didn't, but it did make things a lot more difficult for me. And, you know, what kind of job do you get in geology? And I didn't really know at the time. And I didn't care because I just was so curious about it. And I had never felt that spark of curiosity in anything before. And so it was like, this is probably something worth pursuing because I'm thinking about it a lot. And I want to go to that class more than any other class. Like this might be something. Mm. Um, and so just, you know, like you're talking about your son wanting to travel and pursue music. My older son is that way too. He's a musician. He's an artist. Sometimes I think, you know, okay, so he wants to go to art school. He wants to play music. Like what's the career path going to be? And mm -hmm. I have to remind myself, it doesn't matter because if he's doing what he loves, he's going to be happy and he'll find a way, you know, he's a smart kid. He's a hard worker. He'll figure out his path. Yep. That's exactly it. That's, that's the hard part of parenting is you have to let go. You want the best for your children, but you have to let them find their own journey. And sometimes yeah. that's really hard. It's probably the hardest part of parenting. I think yeah. I've yeah. stumbled upon. Yes. I, I witness it too with my younger son's an athlete. And, you know, we see sometimes parents who are, who really push their kids, like they're in three, four five different sports. They're yelling at them from the sidelines, you know, telling them what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing. And, you know, then with my husband and I, we try to be just totally hands off, you know, what is the sport you want to play? Great. Go to practice, go to your games, do your thing. We cheer, but that's it. You know, the rest is sort of up to him and up to the coach. And uh, you can see the difference in the joy, you know, that he experiences on the field versus if we were screaming at him all the time and trying to coach him in addition to getting coached from his coach, it would yeah. just be a nightmare. Yeah. Well, you're doing the right thing. You absolutely are doing the right thing. So. Yeah. Well, we hope so. I mean, we all mess up our kids in one way or another. We'll see. But uh, for now, it seems to be working. <laughs> So I do want to ask you about the living in all these different places. You said you toured around Europe for a couple months um, and your children have lived overseas. So they've had some experience with living in different cultures. And one of your sons went to Chile. So um, talk a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, about sort of what living in other places besides America has given to you. Like what, what did you learn from those experiences that maybe is, you know, part of who you are today? Yeah. You know, it really opened my mind to having more of a global perspective um, instead of just a centric uh, U.S. perspective. And I, I think that's a good thing. Uh, my younger son um, also went through the International Baccalaureate program at the high school. And so he really has a global perspective. And I'm really happy that both of my kids have traveled and have seen the whole world and not just so U.S. centric. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that I think it's given to me. Another thing that I found out is I'm terrible at learning languages. Oh, <laughs> I'm just terrible at it. Uh, I can, you know, I can speak um, like a two-year-old in about five languages, but that's, <laughs> but I can't go beyond that two-year-old um, level. So I'm not good at languages, although my younger son is. Yeah. 
Um, and it's amazing. And my husband is actually pretty good at language, although he would deny it, but he has more of an ear for it. Yeah. But I found, I think the biggest thing that, that really has touched me is that people are all the same around the world, even though they're very different. Yeah. Uh, when you when you go and you meet someone uh, from a different country and a different culture that speaks a different language, at the core of who they are is they're just another person. Yeah. And they have the same emotions. They have the same experiences that you've had, uh, and you can relate to them. And it's yeah. so fun to relate to people that come from a totally different perspective. Yeah. And you know, one that's, um, you know, like going to China. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to China and we went to Mongolia and, and meeting people that are so different in, in how they look and how they speak. But yet when you start relating about your kids and what you're doing, you know, it comes down to we're all kind of have that same foundation. Yeah. And I think that made me accept a lot and it frustrates me a lot when I hear about the policies and the politics that, that go on. And, you know, so it just, it made me more empathetic to, to people's plights in different yeah. countries mm-hmm. and, uh, and what they're going through and realizing that we're just all humans. I love that so much. I spent time in China as well because I did my field work in Tibet for my uh, PhD research. And, you know, it was by far the most different place from what I understood and what I knew that I'd ever been in my life because I wasn't a big traveler before graduate school. I'd been to Europe a couple of times, but, you know, I had never been somewhere that was really that different. And, you know, living out in the middle of Tibet among nomads and, you know, these are people who don't live in a city. They don't, many of them live in tents, you know, these tents woven out of yak wool that they carry around with them. And, you know, their whole livelihood is goats and yaks and that's really it. And you would think that there's no way I could relate to these people. And then they would invite you into their tent and give you yak butter tea and, you know, steamed bread. And they would, they would invite, even though we couldn't speak necessarily, we didn't speak the same language we communicated. And it was just fascinating to watch them function with their family and think about your own family and like, oh, we're all just people who love our families and want the best for our kids and are trying to make our way in the world. And it was really eye-opening. That's it. And another thing that you mentioned uh, was the food. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think we all communicate through food. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that was, that was another wonderful part of, of exploring the world is the, the, I don't know, the food and the, how, how they are so, pri- um, what is the word I'm trying to do? They're so proud of their food. Sure. They're proud of their traditions. They're proud of their food. And you get served some things that you're like, oh, that is going to be interesting. And I am just going to hang that up. Um, That is going to be really interesting food. Um, You know, it's, it's the one that, um, the one that really got me was in um, Mongolia, we were sitting in a, in a gur and they passed a bowl of, um, I think it's called uric around it's uh, fermented mare's milk. Oh Yeah. And everybody's drinking out of the same bowl and you're yeah. just passing it around and there's, and they're so proud of it and they right. want you to drink their, you know, yeah. their, their fermented mare's milk. And then yeah. in Italy, the same way with, um, oh gosh, it's a really strong liquor that they all make. Mm. Um, and they bring it up from their cellar and they give it to you and you, you can feel it going all the way. Down. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> 
I had that experience in Germany with a friend of mine whose family, you know, they make this liquor in their basement and she gave it to me and it was so strong. But then we also had dinner one night um, and, and I ate something that didn't sit well with me. And so in the middle of the night, she comes out with the bottle of that liquor and she says, take a couple shots. It'll fi fix your stomach. And it surely did. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes you just have to trust people and you know, but it is, that was one of the hardest parts for me, actually, because I have a really sensitive stomach. And so I was really oh. nervous when I went to that, like, this is, this has the potential to be really dangerous because I knew there was going to be butter tea and I knew there was going to be stuff like fermented. They do, um, they make like fermented, like yogurt out of goat milk. Yeah. And, um, my husband is the type that he'll just try anything. And so, but I'm, I would often like say yes and take it and then try to take as little of it as possible without offending people because I was right. so afraid. And, yeah. but what I found was, you know, them offering you their yak butter tea in a tent out in the middle of nowhere, that's all they have to offer you. So how generous of them to be giving you this thing that's important to them. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. I think my husband has had that fermented mare's milk. He's been up that part of the world. It, you know, the things that you hear and you think, oh, that sounds awful. And to them, it's just, that's every day. That's what they eat. It's what they drink. It is what it is what they eat and they drink. And then there's these little cheese things. They would always give you these little hard cheese things. And so you're kind of gnawing on that, you know, <laughs> but it, it is, it's all they have and they're really proud of it. And you, of course, you know, you don't want to offend anybody. And right. so you drink the milk, you chew on the cheese, and yep. um, then you go on your merry way. But you know, the best uh, example I had of learning really sort of understanding it was when we had um, a colleague of ours from China came and stayed with us in Tucson once many years ago. And, you know, we would make dinner and offer him food and we would see the look on his face food that we think is just so benign and it shouldn't bother anybody. And just something as simple as pizza or, you know, cheese, because they don't eat cheese in China, you know, they don't eat bread products. And so you put a pizza in front of this person. And this was back before they had pizza huts all over Beijing. And, you know, he kind of look at us and take a bite and he'd have this, he'd be going, mm, yeah, but his face was saying, this is not good. And we thought, how could somebody not like pizza? And it's, you know, yeah. they're saying the same thing. How can somebody not like fermented mare's milk? Right. Yeah. That's, that's it. We're having a friend um, that's at, that's kind of stuck at the university with COVID. She can't go back to China right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've invited her over for Thanksgiving. So we'll see how she does with our Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. We did that once too, about four or five years ago. Um, we had a bunch of uh, postdoctoral uh, researchers in our department who were from China, maybe three or four with their families, and they'd never been to an American Thanksgiving. And so we invited them to our home. And it was probably the most fun, the best Thanksgiving we've had in a long time. They really enjoyed the food and they were very honest about which dishes they liked and didn't. But the kids, they just were fascinated. They thought it was the best thing in the world, you know, and, and it was like this, this is the reason I think to have Thanksgiving is to get people around a table who maybe don't necessarily understand each other all that well and just throw some food in the middle of the table and see what happens. Yes, that's exactly it. And, and you know, that's what I think you do when you travel around the world is you're on the receiving end of that giving. Mm -hmm. And so um, being able to, um, to know how to to gracefully say, oh, well, that was really good, but um, I think I'll try some other things. <laughs> yeah, sure, of course. Yeah. And so of all the places that you've lived, do you have a favorite? 
You know, a lot of people ask me that. Um, and I don't know, it's hard for me. I, I, like, I like Europe. Mm -hmm. um, we lived in Italy and I, I like, we lived in Northern Italy. So mm -hmm. um, more up um, by Germany and Austria. Yeah. And I feel really comfortable in those countries. Um, I speak a little German more than I speak Italian. Mm -hmm. um, so I, uh, I kind of like those countries. Switzerland's beautiful. Yeah. It's very expensive. Mm. Um, but oh, I mean, you know, when people say, oh, you know, what, how is, you know, Switzerland kind of different? And you probably know this. Um, you know, here in the United States, you start at 9,000 feet and look up to 14,000 feet, um, you know, mountains. But in, in Switzerland, you're at 3,000 feet looking at 14,000 foot mountains. Yeah. So it's this dramatic um mountain views that you get and it was it was really beautiful and, and the people were great so i would say you know probably in that central area of europe yeah. italy austria germany switzerland uh, maybe even going up into hungary all of those uh i just i just feel very at home yeah. for some reason in those countries. Yeah, I've been to all of those places except Hungary and every single one of them, I was just blown away at how amazing they were and always thought upon leaving, I would love to live here for, you know, every country I went to, oh, I'd love to live here for a year. I'd love to live here for a year. Um, and that I think is something too, for people who don't travel a lot, you know, when, when you do, cause I was never a big traveler. And then once I started traveling, I was like, oh my gosh, the world is huge. And I've seen the teeny tiniest portion of it. <laughs> and we really just can't get out of our way, I think sometimes until we go experience other places and realize our way is not the only way. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a key. I think that's, that's the big key to being open-minded is our way is not the only way. And we have to be accepting of that yeah. and, and not, you know, say that, our way is the best way. Our way is the only way. Those are things we shouldn't be saying. Um, yeah. We should we should be inclusive and, and just open up that, wow, I can learn a lot from people that have a different perspective on life. I, I might not always agree with them, but that's okay too. Um, yeah. We can still engage with, with each other. We can still eat with each other right? Um, and, and still be friends, even if we don't have the same perspective on life. And I think, I'm hoping that's what universities do for students is, is open, you know, those, those windows um, so that they have a, a new perspective on, on how they view the world basically. Yeah, I was just going to say that's exactly where I was going. I think that um, working at a university, for me at least, one of the things I love so much about it is meeting students from all over the place with all different viewpoints and backgrounds and things that they are passionate about, you know, and it's just, it's a never-ending source of inspiration for me to see so many different types of students from different backgrounds finding their way, you know, at this, this little microcosm of the world, which is a university, right? Um, and so uh, I imagine now, especially with what you do with digital learning, you know, now we're pulling in students from all over the world that are taking courses at University of Arizona without ever leaving their home countries. Right. Um, and I think that that's a really, really cool initiative. So I do want to um, talk a little bit about what you're doing these days, what you're up to and sort of where your, where your focus is sitting, because I think right now um, digital learning is not only you know, so important today because of our COVID situation, but I think people are starting to realize that it's, it's not going away. This is going to be part of our future in education. So um, 
first of all, talk a little bit about um, this idea of, so I'm gonna prompt you a bit. I hear sometimes from my colleagues, um, an online course is never going to be as good as an in-person course. I hear this all the time. And I've taught both online and in-person. I'm teaching a class of 330 students right now on Zoom. And I bristle at that comment. I'm just going to leave it there. I bristle at that comment. So I'm curious to hear you, someone who's in the digital world, talk a little bit about your thoughts about online learning versus in-person learning and sort of where we're at today. Yeah, it's it's funny because when you when you say online learning, people want to lump it as this mm -hmm. one kind of experience, and they think of it as like a correspondence course mm -hmm. where they don't really have any interactions with humans. And so, what we have to convey to those people who are skeptical about online education is that you can humanize online education, and the human factor is what I think a lot of people say, oh, it'll never be as good because there's not the human factor mm -hmm. in the online. But that's certainly not the case anymore. It maybe was in the 80s yeah. <laughs> and, and the internet is, is, is pretty new. I mean, it's only really been around since the early 90s. So you know, some of the people that are, are really kind of going at online education haven't experienced it to its fullest. Yeah. And I think that human part of it is what they're concerned about. So they say my face-to-face -face class has the human element, that human element you lose in online education. And there is a way to infuse online education with that human experience. And so I think that's what we're trying to do in digital learning. We're trying to help faculty realize that it's not a correspondence course, that you can really be present in the course, um, whether it's through multimedia, whether it's through, um, you know, opportunities like we're doing right here, talking to each other in a virtual um, video conferencing, um, having students engage with, with each other through, um, you know, technologies like VoiceThread, where they're leaving videos for each other and they're, they're you know, exchanging ideas and it feels authentic mm -hmm. instead of forced. Um, so I, and I think it's still has a long way to go. So if, if you look at online education, I think we're out of our infancy. We're like maybe past the toddler stage, yeah. but we have, you know, there is so much more to come. And that's what excites me um, in digital learning is our innovative, our innovation team. You know, those are the folks that are really exploring the next generation of online um, technologies and online courses. And yeah, there's things that I get hung up right now with, with online classes. One thing that is just killing me right now is this online proctoring. Yeah. And it's really, really bad right now. Yeah. And, you know, I think our, our fully online students realize that there's going to have to be some kind of monitoring. So they kind of walked into this knowing but our main campus students who you know, were forced into the online world because of the pandemic are now being you know, forced into this, this proctoring situation, which is terrible. Yeah. And, and I have such empathy for the faculty and the students that are having to deal with, with this technology right now that is not ready, in my opinion, not ready for prime time. Right. So there are still a lot of pain points 
And those are the things that I'm hoping we're trying to address and work on. Yeah. Um, but I think there are some exciting um, areas that, that we're doing well with. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's a give and take and, yeah. and we just have to keep progressing. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things you said that are so important. One is that there is, there is potential for this to be very exciting and dynamic. And so when you're in at the ground level of something that's pretty new, um, I think there's always going to be a group of people who sort of just say, no way, that's never going to work because it's different and it requires a lot of time and effort to make it work well. And I don't want to say that, you know, people are lazy, but we are all overtaxed and overworked. And I think when, you know, you're facing this, okay, so in order for my class to be really good, the way it was before, I have to put in all this extra time to do all these things that I don't even understand, you know, technologically. And that can be very difficult. But I think the University of Arizona, from my experience, has done a really great job of offering lots of resources for faculty to figure out how to do those things pretty seamlessly. The other thing that I think is so exciting and interesting about this is that maybe we also, as faculty, we need to start thinking about, okay, instead of making the, the digital learning world mold to fit the way I teach my class, maybe I have to rethink what is important to me in my class for my students to get out of this experience. And so an example I can think of is, you know, very traditionally, we have weighted exams so heavily in terms of our students' final grades. You know, there's two midterms and a final or a midterm and a final, and it's worth, you know, 70% of their grade or something. Maybe now, you know, and this is something I've done, because of this online proctoring world not being very good and confusing for students and difficult to access, maybe we have to rethink how much of a student's grade depends upon one or two exams that they take during the course of 16 weeks of education. And so one of the ways that I know some of my colleagues and I are dealing with this is, okay, there will be some exams, but they're not going to be as heavily weighted, and we're not going to require them to go into these crazy proctoring situations, and we're going to give them the opportunity to use their notes and use that, you know, so it's a much less high stakes environment and give them lots of other low stakes opportunities in which to show that they are learning the material and working together and doing things like projects or posting things on discussion boards or doing assignments or quizzes or, you know, there's so many ways that you can have students demonstrate their learning. Um, and I really do hope, I sincerely hope that people start to think about that as well. I think that's one good thing that the pandemic has brought to us mm -hmm. is having us rethink how we're doing things. Yeah. And one of the things, you know, and I always, you know, I mean, when it comes to assessment, yeah. Um, I, I look at the classroom and then I look at the real world mm -hmm. and never in the real world would you have a test right. like, like we give in the classroom. Right. So how can we take our assessment and make it more like the real world. Yeah. So if you're, you're working in the re real world, even in the career that you're in, you know, how did you demonstrate to the people who were your funders or who were, you know, you were working for that you were producing work? Right. Well, you know, you do it through reports, you do it through presentations, you do it through talks, you do it, you know, and, and so how can we make this assessment 
more authentic so that our students are actually getting real world experience and not just not just ingesting information and spinning it back out and I, as i always say and, and then going and doing the beer wipe you know it's like okay i crammed for that test yeah i did good on it and now i'm going to go to ben's thank god i'll never have to do that again right and that's not really what we want um and especially when it comes to general education i'm really interested to see how we're going to tackle general education in the next um you know generation of this this um what we're doing at u of a so i'm yeah. kind of excited about that but i i would like students to really think about how they're learning what they're learning and how they can demonstrate their knowledge um and well you know, yeah, that was that was what my whole dissertation was about, and so you know that's that's really intriguing to me to get people to authentically demonstrate their knowledge. Yeah, for sure. I know in uh, I think the only instance I know of any any of my friends who are in the working world who still have to take tests are doctors, like medical people who have to re up their board certification every so often, and so they study and take these tests that are just really intense. But that's a very specialized, you know, something you're going to get when you go to medical school, you're going to learn about that. But I mean, right. I'm a geologist, we give tests all the time. And I don't know one geologist who's taken one test since they've completed their degree ever. Right. Mm -hmm. And but they have to write proposals, they have to write articles, they have to get published, they have to get funding, they have to give oral presentations all the time, they have to teach, yes. um, you know, so it's like, maybe we should be doing more of that to assess them as students, especially as graduate students. But I think one of the barriers is, again, it's time and faculty look at a class of 50 people and say, am I going to have to grade 50 papers every week, every two weeks? How do I do this? And I know that funding is short sometimes for support. And so if we can't fund teaching assistants and we can't train our teaching assistants properly to help with these types of tasks, faculty are just overwhelmed. And I, I understand that sentiment, sentiment and the easiest way to get a quick assessment is to give everybody a test. Right, and that's, that's why I think we need to, as a university, look at our structure yeah. and how we, like when you were talking about TAs and, and having pods of, of people learning together naturally instead of just you know this this exam what one thing that drives me crazy and you'll probably laugh about this is those blue book notebooks that you oh see in the bookstore yes you know and i'm like okay really because uh, you know and, and then you know when i talk to faculty about that they're like well it really keeps them from cheating you know because they're not copying pasting and, and i'm like really <laughs> But, you know, and and it's it's funny because you would never ever go into a work situation and your employer hands you a pen and a notepad and says, "Here, go do your job." Right. The first thing you're going to get on a job is a computer. Right. And so you know you need to to learn how to use that. And so that really goes into the digital learning. Yeah. And also into how this pandemic has really forced us into being more digital. Yeah. And honestly, what we're doing now, this is the first type of interaction a student is going to have for an interview. Yeah. You know, it, so now we're getting more accustomed to talking, learning how to talk to a camera, learning how to have the right light, learning that we need a microphone. Yeah. You know, all of these things are gonna make students look more professional for that first touch point, yep. which is the interview with the company they may wanna work for. 
So oh, absolutely. It's just, it, that's what digital learning or digital world is all about now. Yeah. And I have to say, so um, teaching in Zoom this semester, and I normally teach a large gen ed class, you know, where I'm in front of three or 400 people. Um, I am actually finding that I'm getting better discussion and better interaction in my Zoom class because I think because students can be anonymous, they feel anonymous. They don't have, they don't have to turn their camera on. They don't have to raise their hand and talk in front of 300 people that are all restless and looking at their phones. And so they can either put it in the chat or I get them asking questions all the time. And I'm just blown away by the level of questions that I'm getting in Zoom class that I've never gotten before in an in-person class where I'm basically just fighting to keep their attention for 50 minutes. And so when people say to me, you know, you can't teach a class like that in a, in a high quality way online. And I just want to scream at them and say, I'm getting better results with my students who are attending Zoom class than I would get in the classroom. Now, the one barrier I am having is that I don't require them to be in Zoom class because of these issues with COVID and with time differences and that they can't always be in class synchronously at noon, three days a week, their technology doesn't work, they've got people at home, you know, whatever. So everything's provided to them, you know, asynchronously as needed. But, the, but I strongly encourage them to come to Zoom class because we have discussions. Right. And the students who come are doing way better than the students who don't come. And it's, that's my one thing is unless I require it and I attach points to it, there's going right. to be a subset of students who just never come to Zoom class and benefit from those discussions. Um, and there's a part of me that feels like, well, maybe I should have something attached so they have to come. Then there's the other part of me that says, they have lives and difficulties and stresses enough right now. And if they can do it without coming to Zoom class and they're happy with their grade and they're feeling successful, who am I to say, you have to come to Zoom class, right? So it's a fine line, I think, between how we wrangle our students into this new world and get them enthusiastic about it versus forcing them to be there at a given time on a given day for a number of points, which I think sort of makes it a little more intimidating for them. So what is your take on that? Have you, what have you been finding from faculty around campus? I think the best way is really hybrid. So, you know, that you, you get to meet with your students face-to-face -face because there is something about that energy yeah. that we don't get in a Zoom. You just don't get the same energy as you do when you meet face-to-face -face with yeah. someone. Yeah. So I really like the, the hybrid model. Um, when I was teaching at Pima Community College, um, I also teach here at the university, but when I was teaching at Pima, um, I found that I was doing this hybrid, this flipped classroom way before they were even calling it that. Yeah. And what I found, because what I was teaching, a lot of uh, U of A students would come to Pima to take, it was a computer class yeah. and it transferred right over. And all of my U of A students would sit in the front and they were so attentive and they would raise their hands and they would participate. And then my Pima students would sit more in the back. And then there's the back row that they don't even participate. Yeah. And what I found is when I had discussions online, those folks in the back of the back row came to the front. Yeah. You know, they were in, I just, it, I was amazed like you, I was kind of blown away. Wow. There's some real good questions coming out of the back row right. in the online discussion that they would never have said, because I've got the U of A kids in the front, you know, the eager beavers, you know, right. and I'm like, okay, you know, the squeaky wheels at the front of the class. Right. Um, and so I think it does give access um, in a way that that I didn't anticipate, mm -hmm. but 
I also think we should think about restructuring the way that we teach altogether. Yeah. And I think we can do this. This is one, um, one thing that I think global is looking at. Mm -hmm. um, so in, you know, they're, they're doing that flipped classroom, yeah. but I think they're also looking at having educational hubs around, um, you know, in these different countries mm. so that there are experts at the hub mm -hmm. that students can come to and they can meet. So it's, it's more organic. Yeah. Um, yes, you can have scheduled times. Hey, we're going to have um, um, a, a lecture or a presentation on this topic if you want to come. But then this expert will be there if you just want to walk in and have a casual conversation or if you want to go meet with them and have a cup of coffee so that the student can do the, the majority of their work online where they can watch the lectures, they can read the materials, they can engage with their peers, but then they have a place mm -hmm. where they can go to engage with an expert, yeah. uh, whether it's a faculty member, a graduate student, an, a counselor, an advisor. Right. You know, I, I think that's a better system. And I think that's kind of what they do in the UK. Yeah. If I, I remember correctly when I was living over there and I talked with some professors, um, you know, the professors would meet with the students and then send them off to different lectures. It wasn't like they had a set. Yeah. Okay. You have to be in class at this time. And I think that's a more accommodating mm -hmm. educational environment for students because then the education is built around them yeah. instead of it being built around the structure of the, the faculty and a time and a place. Yeah. So, but that's a big cultural shift. Yeah. It's a big paradigm shift from our K-12 education. So whenever we get students who are successful in that model, and then they come over to higher ed and we do this paradigm shift on them, we're going to get a lot of tension and we're going to get a lot of pushback. Yeah, and I've had students say to me, you know, I really do better when I just have a class to attend in person. And it's so interesting to me because I've been doing this for 15 years. And from what I've observed, the majority of students who come to my class every day in the in-person setting are not engaging when they're there. They come and they're getting their participation points, but they're looking at a phone or, you know, and we try so hard to monitor that and keep, but when you have three, four, five hundred in a room, it's nearly impossible you know, they're, they're whispering to each other, they're reading another book, you know, so they're telling me I do better when I come to class, but, but they're not really engaging in the class. So they need to shift their thinking too about what does it actually mean to do better in a class? Yes. If just showing up and getting attendance points means doing better Then that's not, they're not really understanding the goals of these classes and what we want to get from them. And I think on the faculty side, it's also a difficult paradigm shift because we as faculty, look, we all have egos. We all think that what we're doing is important. Our time is important. And so the right. thought of putting everything around the students, centering it around the students, making it more accommodating for students seems so strange to us because we feel like, look, I'm the professor and I'm holding class Monday, Wednesday, Friday at noon. You're either there or you're not. And if you can't be there, that's not my problem. And again, I don't think the world works that way anymore. No, no, it really doesn't. But, but yet there, there's, there's a piece of that that still should be available. So if we were to have these learning hubs and a professor could say, wow, I really am so passionate about this topic and I want to talk about it. Yeah. And I want people to learn about this topic. 
Yeah. And again, it goes into, okay, how are you going to assess? Yeah. You know, how are you, cause, cause at the end of the day, we have to award a certificate or a degree. So we are the keepers of the knowledge, you know? Right. And so how are we going to, you know, continue to be the gatekeepers because that's the whole tension that's going on in higher education right now there's so many different ways of learning yeah but higher education still has this but we're the gate holders we're the ones that have that degree yeah and and we have to think that that's going to shift and I think there's a lot of books on that right now about how higher education has got to to make a, a shift and they really need to start thinking about that yeah I think that's fascinating. I think we'll get there. It's going to take time, but you know, I'm noticing in working with um, the gen, the new gen ed committee, for example, we're from all over campus, all different backgrounds, disciplines, different ages. And I'm noticing that some of those sort of antiquated ideas about, you know, the professors standing on a stage, professing knowledge for an hour um, being teaching are starting to fade. There's not many people who really would tell you that that's a useful form of education for our students anymore. Um, Again, I'm not saying that we should never have lectures because I think there are some people who are amazing speakers and students get a lot out of just hearing them speak. But as an educational model, I think that we are moving away from this idea of the professor professing knowledge and the students absorbing it like sponges and then we give them a test and everybody's happy. Um, I just don't think we're there anymore. And I think that digital learning plays a big part in that. I agree with you. I I agree. And I think students want it too. Um, Students want that electronic you know, experience, Mm -hmm. um, because even when you walk around, I'm sure, you know, everybody walks around, sees kids with, you know, they're more engaged with this than they are actually speaking face-to-face with each other. And, um, you know, they say, why isn't my syllabus online? Right. Uh, you know, or why, and, and faculty, and again, the pandemic has really pushed this agenda to be like, okay, you really have to have, um, you know, your course in a learning management system. Although, I think there's a lot of things that we can improve upon learning management systems. I think that's an, a new area that needs to be you know, pushed into to new because it's yeah. very linear. It's very, yeah. you know, it's yeah. almost like the classroom with the rows. Yep. Uh, that's how the, the learning management system is. So how can we engage students that, that feels, um, I guess, more humanized, Sure. Um, you know, so that they enter into a digital space where they, they feel more comfortable. Yep. It's not just a linear text experience. Maybe there's some multimedia thrown in, but it's kind of just jam packed in there. It's not, yeah. you know, it doesn't have a flow to it right. that um, I, I think that's why I think we're out of the toddler stage. Yeah. Um, we've got a lot of growth and it, that's why it's an exciting area to be in. Well, I really appreciate you talking with me about this today because I think, again, this is so timely. I think a lot of us are struggling as parents, as educators with this this digital space and how we do our best for our kids and also for our students. Um, And it just gives me hope that people like you who are passionate about this are working on it and are really serious about doing the best by our students, which I think is what it's all about. Nice, nice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Melody. This has been so much fun to get to know you a little better. I had no idea about your background. It's just fascinating. And um, where can people who listen to this, people on campus who are maybe interested in getting more resources for digital learning, where can they go? 
So um, we have a great website. Uh, it's digitallearning.arizona.edu. Really easy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it has a lot of information. It has our instructional designers. It has our instructional technologists. Now our instructional technologists serve all of campus. Mm-hmm. We also have, are the, the ones who provide Adobe support. So mm-hmm. if you're interested in Adobe Creative Cloud, you would also get that from this site. Uh, so there's a lot of really good information. It's a fun site to kind of go poke around and see all of the resources that we offer um, in our yes. office. And I will just say I've worked with them on both designing an online course out of my gen ed and the instructional designer was amazing. The video folks were amazing helping me video back when we could do it in person. They were helped me videotape all of my lectures in studio, which was fantastic. They've also helped me with um, editing, sound editing these podcast episodes, which I've learned how to do myself. And that was through the Adobe Creative Cloud with um, Audition. So There are so many resources and I just don't think people realize that like it's not as hard as you think it's going to be if you get the right person helping you how to do it. And we've got those people in spades at U of A for sure. We really do. And and there's also OIA, so Office of Instruction and Assessment. We work very closely with OIA. So we're just, you know, we're right there together. And um, I think they also have a a lot of great resources for faculty. Not as much students. I I think that's an area that we need to start growing in. Mm -hmm. I think digital learning needs to grow in that area too of helping students. Uh, We do it with instructional technologies, but I think we need to to branch out and do more. So we're looking at ways to, to, um, I guess, engage with students and their experience here at the U of A. You need some student ambassadors for digital learning, like students who are really tech inclined and who have had good experiences who could come on and be your ambassadors. (laughs) We do. And I think we're going to work with um, the uh, Catalyst Lab over in the library. And that's really student centric. So I think working with that lab is going to help us also doing internships uh, for students so that they can have um, real experiences uh, in the working world in the digital area. So and there's a lot of different ways they can do that even to the point right now we have students helping us build a new set Mm. for our studio. Oh, so cool. Arts. So, you know, there, there's a lot of a uh, lot of opportunities for students to work with us. Well, that's fantastic. I love to hear that. So thank you again for spending time with me today. And I really enjoyed talking with you. And I wish you all the best through COVID and beyond. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care. <laughs>